Good afternoon. It's Friday the 27th of May 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wirewalls, the programme Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And we also have Alex Thompson with us from Eastern Approaches. So uh, welcome, Alex, as well. Now we're going to get straight on here. We've got a lot to cover. So uh, cost of living. And uh, well, a couple of days ago, Sky News had this headline, cost of living, energy price cap expected to rise by £830 in October to £2,800. Uh, according to Ofgem, they've been giving evidence uh, in Parliament. Uh, but of course, that's on top of the recent Ofgem announcement that they were hoping to uh, increase the regularity of these price cap up, uh, up sort of updates to every uh, three months instead of every six months. Uh, and of course, they said in their press release, this was all, make, all about making sure that the general public were getting advantage, taking advantage of the falls in energy prices. Uh, what is the prospect of that? Not likely, I think. So uh, they are quite a bit of backlash to this because uh, uh, quite a bit of skepticism about what this was actually about. Of course, it's actually about uh, making sure the uh, energy companies can um, more rapidly react to rising prices. But anyway, this is uh, Rishi and he pushed out a little video clip on Twitter yesterday all about the cost of living support explained because, of course, he's issued his uh, his, uh, relief package for everybody because we're going to need that. Uh, and so £400 is the grant for all households in the UK. It doesn't matter how much you earn, uh, you're going to get that. Uh, Six million uh, disabled people receiving £150 on top of that. Uh, Eight million pensioner households receiving £300 on top of that. And another eight million of the lowest income households receiving £650 on top of that. Now, the, what's interesting is that uh, they, this money is going to be paid directly into bank accounts. Um, so uh, then the question is, what happens if you're on a prepay meter? Well, they say that they're going to uh, 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 allow for that money to be applied to their meter or they're going to be issued a voucher. Um, so contrary, you know, if you're, if you're not on a prepay meter, if you're on a, uh, some kind of credit meter, of course, that money goes into your bank account and you can spend, you can choose what to spend it on. You could spend it on food if that's your main priority, uh, overheat, for example. Uh, but uh, if you're on a prepay meter, you don't get that option. So, so the solution to these uh, runaway uh, energy prices, this market that's just gone into hyperbolic uh, uh, in- increase, Mike, is what to print up money. That, that's exactly it. To, so, well, to, it worked. To, look, it worked for COVID, Patrick. We to had print furlough, up money. We had furlough schemes. We had all kinds of schemes printing up money for over COVID. It worked. Therefore, we've got to do it again. Right? What's that going to do to inflation? It's going to do exactly what the furlough scheme and, and the, the other money printing over the last two years has done to inflation. It's going to stick it through the roof. So you're free. You're free. 400 quid could get wiped out in inflation within months. Not only that, what happens if the energy companies come back with another price rise in six months? Well, they're already doing that in October. So, well, so what, what, what's the 400 quid going to do? Is it going to make a dent? Are you, are you going to be really better off? The government, there's reasons why the energy prices have gone through the roof. We've been covering that since September. All, all the ridiculous green policies, all the, the carbon uh, shenanigans, uh, and, the, and the sanctions uh, against Russia. Sticking it to Russia, backing Zelensky, and we're paying for that. So uh, sarcasm aside, of course, this is going to do nothing on the long term for anybody. It's a short term uh, headline is all it is. Uh, and uh, of course, this is going to run on for much longer, as you say, Patrick, than uh, than this uh, intervention is going to help with. So let's just uh, talk about Russia for a second, because this is Al Jazeera uh, commenting on well, the headline is Russia inches closer to debt default as U.S. lets key waiver 
expire. That's a disingenuous uh, headline there because it implies that the U.S. just simply let something you know pass. Well, that's not the case. They they actually ended this uh, so-called uh, sanctions. Uh, what what is it they're calling it? It, uh, it was a, a, a an amnesty for sanctions. So in other words, if if you were on the receiving end of if you were holding Russian bonds and you were on the receiving end of Russian debt, uh, the Russians were still allowed to pay off that debt because it was an amnesty for that. Uh, the U.S. government just decided to end that amnesty, um, and as a result, of course, people can no longer or Russia can no longer pay their sovereign debt. So let's have a look and see. Here's uh, a, one comment from one financier. This is Kyle Shostak. Uh, from uh, Navigator Principal Investor saying, this will effectively turn Russia's liabilities to the category of default, as it is commonly understood and interpreted by international rating agencies. Uh, this situation can be called nothing but an enforcement of an artificial default, as Russia now has enough funds to service its external debt. Look at that again. Russia has enough funds to service its external debt. Uh, if attempts to provide payments to foreign in foreign currencies are unsuccessful, Russian Ministry of Finance will offer creditors the opportunity to open ruble accounts. So this was, uh, he was saying this was one option, was that the Russians will continue to try to pay uh, these debts in through some kind of other currency, um, and uh, they'll still try to, to make it. But look, let's summarize what's actually going on here. Uh, so Russia is able and willing to pay its external debt, uh, but the payments are not allowed uh, in the United States. Because of sanctions. Because, because of sanctions. Uh, therefore, Western creditors have to accept this. So they've just got to suck it up. Uh, and the result is going to be broken supply chains, cold because oil, gas, uh, hunger because of wheat and so on, and war. And higher prices. Right. And ultimately higher prices. And so when we talk about Rishi Sunak uh, offering some kind of uh, bung to the British people to cope with the cost of energy, We've got to remember what's been driving this cost of energy, this, these price hikes in energy, and that is government policy. And that government policy is continuing. So the, the price rises happened for a host of reasons, money printing, uh, the fact that economies were shut down over COVID, uh, the prospect of war with Russia. And then when the war happened, uh, then that has, has continued and it's not going to end anytime soon. Uh, and in the meantime, he throws 400 quid at people as if that's going to solve anything. The policy has to change. Since when has sanctions ever been uh, prohibiting a country from servicing its debt? The, the U.S. has stolen $300 billion in Russian foreign currency reserves. That alone uh, could service the debt. Are they going to ever pay it back? Or is it going to get appropriated yes. and then sent to Zelensky to buy U.S. weapons with? Is that the scam? That's going to happen. Meanwhile, this is ridiculous. Do you know the last time Russia defaulted on its uh, international obligations? Do you know how long ago it was? Tell me. Uh, around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. I think it was right. a, you know, 1916 or something like that. I mean, talk about a spotless credit record. Can you imagine through all the wars and everything? And now this has happened. So... Uh, Alex, uh, let's uh, welcome you to the program. And uh, any thoughts on that? It is a pan-European problem. I'm back in the Netherlands now where I normally live and the inflation, uh, the price rises generally and the inflation of energy bills is almost exactly the same as it is in Britain. And as far as I can judge, as far, the same as the US and Canada as well. Uh, the difference between countries in Europe is just who gets the blame. The further east you go, 
the more skepticism there is, uh, particularly in Hungary, uh, as regards the idea that it's all Russia's fault. Uh, and this is quite existential for countries of the order of Hungary, because the, you know, the Ukrainians are threatening to turn their valve off uh, because the Hungarians are not joining in blaming Russia for it all. Uh, so it, it is a, an inflationary mess. But it's, it's this zone of Europe I'm speaking from and Germany and eastwards that remembers what mass inflation was like. Uh, if you want to look at more recently than a century ago, 1923 in Weimar, Germany, you have to look to other continents. And that's probably why the English speaking world is uh, devoid of context and awareness when discussing the effects of mass inflation in prices. Uh, well, uh, more recently, Alex, we shouldn't forget uh, there was a slight inflationary problem in, in Poland, of course, following uh, uh, the withdrawal of, of Russia from that country. This is true. But of course, Poland and Russia have such bad blood that, you know, you, you cannot really expect uh, a fair reflection uh, of what goes on in even the rest of the region. If you look at Polish-Russian relations and rhetoric, look at the quieter countries in their wake. Uh, Peter Sijarto, the Hungarian foreign minister, pointed out recently and has not been uh, refuted on the matter that nine European Union member states have opened uh, ruble accounts with Gazprom Bank in Moscow to evade the sanctions without uh, breaking the EU's visible unity. He didn't name them, but uh, there has been no refutation of that. Yes. And, and these are these are government, intentional government policies that have caused these economic uh, t tumults, Mike. So mm -hmm. the, these aren't acts of God. It's not acts of Putin. There is actually no moral case for these sanction regime, regimes. And not only that, it, uh, you're pressed to find the uh, international precedent for it, okay? We have seen sanctions like this preceding, for instance, the Second World War, and that's one of the things that compelled Japan to attack the United States at Pearl Harbor uh, in December of 1941. A lot of people don't ever recognize that uh, as a precursor to World War II, but in fact, that's history. So the, the, the moral case isn't there because this is not how sanctions are meant to be applied. They haven't changed the behavior or they're not going to alter the outcome of the conflict. So it's purely for punishment, yeah. a collective punishment. Right. So th there's no moral case. There's no economic case. And I really don't even see the political case uh, either. OK, let's uh, move on then to, well, that wonderful place, Davos. This is that time of year. Well, it was in the winter, wasn't it? Davos was normally in the winter. It's normally ski chalets, as you can see from this beautiful shot here at Davos. The snow's melting. This is sort of late spring. You could say that uh, this is uh, springtime for Klaus in Switzerland, Yes. to borrow a term from the uh, Mel Brooks producers. Uh, but there we go. Let's take a look at uh, who the players are. Well, there is Herr Schwab, springtime for Klaus, absolutely Bill Gates. The, and then this, uh, the leprechaun there from Ireland, uh, bon, that ghoulish creature, Bono. These are the types of people that are partying and uh, meeting and talking about world hunger over canapes and uh, uh, Louis Rotary or champagne. Uh, well, well, there's one notable uh, person missing from that, uh, that uh, rogues gallery that you've got on screen at the moment, uh, Patrick. And of course, that is the wonderful George Soros. Ah, yes. Uh, so uh, let's uh, have a listen to some of his remarks. Uh, from uh, a couple of days ago. Thank you all for coming. Since the last Davos meeting, the course of his history has changed dramatically. Russia invaded Ukraine. That has shaken Europe to its core. 
the European Union had been established to prevent such a thing from happening. Even when the fighting stops, as it eventually must, the situation will never revert to what it was before. The invasion may have been the beginning of the Third World War, and our civilization may not survive it. So what do you think of that? Well, he tweeted out just uh, after that that Putin has made a grave mistake uh, in you know, invading or launching the military intervention in Ukraine. And so that, you know, basically putting all the blame on Putin and Russia. Typical George Soros' whole career has been out to sort of hamstring or destroy the Soviet Union or Russia. Um, he himself has made an absolute fortune plundering Ukraine, the post-Soviet Ukraine. He's boasted about that publicly, so I think that's uh, pretty amazing that he's taking to the podium here uh, and saying what he said. Yes, Alex, and he said uh, there's no going back, but he also said that uh, what's going on with uh, Ukraine is the start of World War III. I, I, I wonder, maybe we could say that uh, the South Ossetian uh, situation might have been the actual start, because this is really just a continuation of that particular uh, uh, campaign against Russia. Or if we dial it back just 18 months prior to that, Mike, you have the West's recognition of Kosovo, which still many, many members uh, of the United Nations uh, in various continents have not acceded to. And just before that, uh, Putin warned at the Munich Security Conference that if Kosovo were recognized, that would be the end of the Helsinki Final Act era of 1975, respect of the uh, post-Second World War borders de facto and effectively de jure. That's what began this all. Uh, revanchism, uh, a much bandied about term in Central and Eastern Europe, in other words, trying to expand your territory on an ethnic basis to some previous glory days, came back into the lexicon as of that date. And uh, yeah, I was a little perturbed by um, uh, Soros's, you know, it may have been a linguistic issue, uh, turn a phrase that this may have been the start of World War III. When I heard that phrase, I thought he was saying, thank goodness we've averted it. It's an unfulfilled past conditional. But then he goes on to say civilization may not survive. So um, he, he's actually saying it's not a linguistic issue. He's saying this might yet prove to be the start of World War III. So I think that backs up your analysis. Uh, okay, thank you for that. Now let's uh, have a, another quick listen to what he said next. The world has been increasingly engaged in a struggle between two systems of governance that are diametrically opposed to each other, open society and closed society. Let me define the difference as simply as I can. In an open society, the rule of the, of, of the state is to protect the freedom of the individual. In a closed society, the role of the individual is to serve the rulers of the state. Other issues concerning all of humanity fighting pandemics and climate change, avoiding nuclear war, maintaining global institutions, have had to take a backseat to that struggle. That's why I say our civilization may not survive. 
Okay, so for, before I get comment from uh, Alex and Patrick, uh, let's just move on with what he went on to say. He said, repressive regimes now are now in the ascendant and open societies are under siege. Today, China and Russia present the greatest threat to open society. We can have a think about that in a second. Uh, and he said, uh, while the war rages, the fight against climate change has to take second place. Yet experts tell us that we've already fallen far behind and climate change is on the verge of becoming irreversible. Uh, that could be the end of our civilization. Therefore, we must mobilize all our resources to bring this war to an early end. Uh, the best and perhaps only way to preserve our civilization is to defeat Putin as soon as possible. That's the bottom line. So that's his position. Um, and uh, Alex, uh, if I start off with you, um, I wonder what your thoughts are about his definitions of open society and closed societies uh, and which of those uh, descriptions best fits what has happened in the UK, the EU and the United States over the last two years? Well, you've got the key question there, as usual, Mike, and we can't go into the philosophical weeds of it other than to say that Soros got his definition or his obsession with the idea of openness from his post-war tutor at the London School of Economics, uh, Karl Popper, P-O-P-P-E-R. And as with other philosophers uh, of that ilk, like Hegel much earlier, people do run away with simplistic ideas. But we can safely pare it down to this, that uh, Popper was preaching that to avoid a, um, a repeat of the first half of the 20th century and all its horror in Europe, you needed continual new blood of ideas. And in Soros's next generation thinking, that ideas transmogrified into constant supply of fresh people, immigration, um, in order to prevent a society from stagnating. Open and closed is, is a very long debate, but what he's hiding here is the idea of globalism at the highest level, that you need a constant, almost like an electrical circuit, uh, energy throughput into societies. Otherwise, they will become, in the words of the globalists, uh, to, to, um, to denigrate this idea, they will become protectionist societies. There will be barriers to trade, or more positively put, there will be tariffs on imports and innovation will be uh, encouraged and fostered within the country to the extent that you might end up, if you're a big continental economy like the USA, Russia or China, you might end up as an autarkic nation self-supplying. That is the horror of horrors, of course, uh, to the likes of Soros, because then there's no need for them and their constant churn of individuals. And yes, uh, the other part of your question, Britain clearly is the closed society now, but by dint of not specifying what's meant by these adjectives, open and closed, that's where Soros has pulled the fast one. Closed sounds very uh, gloomy, doesn't it? But in any uh, fair recognition, a uh, fair analysis of the situation, Britain is closed because the ideas much as we now have constant churn of people, the ideas are very much curtains down, shutters down. There are many, many things that you cannot say or think anymore. Indeed. Yeah, and, and George Soros's life's work is, is really, if you look at it, just a follow-up from what Alex has just said, is, is generally undermining the nation-state, mm. uh, weakening the nation-state to, to a degree that it would become a protectorate of the Anglo-American or the Atlanticist uh, power bloc. And so they have to be subservient politically, economically. So, so in a way, the marriage of convenience between George Soros and U.S. intelligence, the U.S. establishment, British, etc., it's, it's a marriage of convenience. It works for him. It works for his ideology. And it works for their uh, neo-imperialistic uh, machinations. But the real irony is, is the things that he is warning about that we need to get control of, the pandemic 
and climate change. In order to get control of these so-called problems, you need to have a closed society, more closed than ever, under a technocratic globalist jackboot. Okay, that's the irony of what he's saying. Maybe there's no irony in that at all. Certainly, we don't find that ironic. We just find that academic. Right. But it's interesting how Soros has twisted the narrative on that. Um, so uh, let's look at perhaps somebody that's telling us about a closed society. Well, here's an example. Again, back to Davos. This is uh, Australia's safety uh, czar. Safety czar. Julie. Online safety, is this? Online safety. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, Julie uh, Inman Grant. This is one of the uh, panel discussions. Let's listen to what she says about the open society that we're struggling with right now. Let's right. listen to this. We are finding ourselves in a place um, where we're, we have increasing polarization everywhere and everything feels binary when it doesn't need to be. So I think we're going to have to think about a recalibration of a whole range of human rights that are playing out online, you know, from freedom of speech to the freedom to, you know, to be free from on online violence or the uh, right of data protection to the right to child dignity. So recalibrate, recalibrate free. This freedom of speech thing isn't really working out, says uh, Julie uh, in man grant. Uh, let's take a look at Julie here. Uh, she is with the Australian government. She's e-safety commissioner. She's the online safety czar in that country. And so you can imagine the sort of stuff that she's working on. You've got to love this website, Mike. You can actually report the abuse straight off of the uh, off the government's website. So they're not messing around. Uh, in Australia there. And she also sits on this board at the World Economic Forum, the Global Coalition for Digital Safety. And you know, the thing that I think is amazing is when they're talking, these people talk about online uh, safety, online, uh, keeping safe from online horrors and whatnot. To, to, and they're equating them with like real world uh, dangers. Mm. They're not. They're things that are happening online. They're images, they're simulacra. Of, of reality, they're not real, but they're they're placing them in an equal standing with real world violence. So uh, just a couple of days ago, Patrick, I don't know whether you saw the headline, but uh, apparently uh, somebody is alleging uh, a rape within the metaverse uh, and Facebook is involved in, in this. Uh, so there, there's gonna be criminal action Allegedly. So your digital avatar has human rights? That's so, that's how it seems to be becoming, yes. And lawyers are loving this, I'm sure. It's just another uh, market for, for the legal profession. But So that's interesting. So that's what she, she does. So again, she's advocating for a closed society at Davos. Right. Uh, it, right after George Soros gives his speech. So they, they can't get their sort of story straight on that. And so just back to Davos here, take a look at this. Um, it used to be all parties and uh, cocktail parties and things like that. Not this year, Mike. It's all about vegans, early evenings. The bankers are upset. They can't find a good uh, knees up for loving their money. Look at this, struggling to find a party that goes past 7 p.m. The Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, these young whippersnappers are there. They got tons of cash. They want to splash for the Dom Perignon. It's not happening at Davos. They, I'm sorry for them. Davos is also very conscious, uh, we're, we're told, uh, about their image uh, because they're advocating for global austerity. Right. Uh, and so now they're sort of trying to dial back uh, the luxury a little bit, the optics, uh, but still there's what, a couple hundred private jets 
uh, on the tarmac over there. So, I mean, that's a little bit difficult there. They're trying. They're trying. Yes. Okay, and that brings us on to uh, Helen Clark. Helen Clark, former Prime Minister of New Zealand. She's got something to say here about COVID. She's saying, this is on a panel with Bill Gates, who we'll talk about later. She's saying, we can't miss this opportunity. COVID is slipping away, says the former New Zealand Prime Minister. Listen to this. The reality is that political resolve to fight COVID is waning. Popular support for measures is, is waning. You know, people are over COVID. The problem is it's not done with us, but we're in danger of losing this moment for transformative uh, change. And let's face it, people are still dying in significant numbers every, every day. People are still developing long COVID every day. Uh, Low-income countries uh, are horribly, horribly under-vaccinated. Under We've got issues here and now. I think another reason is that the package of things that has to happen is trans-sector, and there hasn't yet been a, an effort to try and bring together a, a head of state and government level focus on the range of things that needs to be done. Makes Margaret Thatcher look like a pixie. <laughs> There's something in the, uh, the, the female leaders are very kind of, is there, are there, is there testosterone in the mouton and the lamb in New Zealand? What, Don't know. Between her and Ardern, amazing. So she's saying that, uh, wow, we can't let go of this opportunity. We've got to stick it to the plebs. Uh, we can't let COVID slip away. So that, that, that's, the hard, that's the hard end of Davos right there. Uh, Helen Clark, former uh, Kiwi prime minister. Positively frightening. And again, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to Bill Gates then. Well, Bill Gates uh, is obviously in the news again this week. It turns out, this is according to Breitbart News, uh, it seems to be accurate because there hasn't been any major denials, although the media have tried to scurry away with the fact-checking on this. Elon Musk uh, attacked Bill Gates after a report in Breitbart News uh, alleges that Bill Gates had spent no less tens of millions, possibly up to $100 million, to derail Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter by trying to uh, initiate a boycott of advertising uh, commitments from various advertisers saying they will pull their accounts from Twitter if Elon Musk uh, is allowed to uh, go through with his hostile takeover of that with the world's biggest social media platform. Right. So th that's Bill Gates throwing his money around. By the way, it's the same Bill Gates that shorted Tesla stock, I yeah, think. So th th you've got this feud of billionaires, but isn't it amazing that Bill Gates with all of his money um, why would he be threatened by Elon Musk buying Twitter? It has, has something to do with the free speech position that uh, Elon Musk is advocating. Would that undermine Bill Gates's uh, things that he likes to publicize and the propaganda he likes to push on Twitter? That's my reading of it. Mm. I don't know if anyone else has a different uh, Alex, angle any thoughts? On that. Well, uh, Elon Musk's uh, change of stance, such as his withdrawal of support from the Democrat Party, uh, has caused some conniptions, to use a, an American English word. There's a lot of people are clutching their pearls about it. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has now let it be known that she wishes to divest herself of a Tesla because of Musk's current stance. And we may skip it or not, but towards the end of the news, I had prepared a complimentary slide to what Pat has just presented regarding the hate industry or the anti-hate industry, a bit like fascism and racism, you know, anti 
is the prefix that justifies all. The anti-hate lobby in Britain is uh, very much bullying anyone who will uh, go on Twitter because of Elon Musk. So it provides a, a wonderful spin-off opportunity for a lot of people to be uh, aghast and shocked, shocked, I tell you, as it was put in Casablanca, totally yeah. insincere. Yes, indeed. And this is the thing, they're, they're, they're afraid about the conspiracy theorists now, they're, the mainstream media openly, uh, the WHO pandemic treaty, this is the big worry uh, with Dr. Teodros and his inner circle. There's conspiracy theorists circulating that this pandemic treaty is going to be an end run around national sovereignty. Oh my goodness, we need to shut down this problem on social media platforms. Yes. So Bill Gates fits very nicely. Uh, in, into that situation. Okay, well, let's move on then to the uh, World Health Association uh, part of this. And uh, well, Sajid Javid, our illustrious health secretary, was speaking at it. Uh, and I'm sorry to do this to everybody, but well, let's just watch uh, a minute or so of what he had to say. We gather here today in a peaceful European city with no need to fear the sound of incoming missiles or artillery or to fear rape and execution at the hands of invading troops. But just a few months ago, the people of another European city enjoyed peace and security too. But now, Mariupol has been completely destroyed by Russian troops, just like many other towns and villages in Ukraine, as we just heard from the First Lady. As a group of nations, we cannot be pro-health, pro-humanity, without being against such brutal violence. Not least when at least 200 healthcare facilities and workers have been attacked by Russia, as verified by the WHO. So it is absolutely right that we vote on a motion condemning President Putin's unjustifiable aggression. And I welcome the deeply felt concern expressed by the Director General's opening in his opening address about the tragic impact of war. So I don't know how many inaccuracies and lies there were in that little section, uh, but, but a few. Alex. Um, interpreters like me who know people who work the Geneva market, one of the biggest interpreting markets in the diplomatic world, will know that his errors began when he described Geneva as a peaceful city. There's robberies with submachine guns and uh, home invasions and people being clobbered on the street no end of times per year. Uh, of course, he flies in and out under protection, so he wouldn't know such details. It's the first time I've heard mock angry Javid. I think he needs to work on his delivery a bit. Yeah, well, <laughs> he did it the Biden delivery style. Yeah, I think. yeah, well, indeed. So, so anyway, he went on uh, to say this uh, nearly two and a half years since the pandemic began. The moment has come uh, when the talk of learning lessons must turn to concrete actions. Uh, I'm pleased the intergovernmental inter negotiating body on a new instrument is in full swing. Uh, the process has the UK's full support. Uh, allied to that effort is the 100 day target, the mission to make safe and effective vaccines. Uh, therapeutics and diagnostics available within 100 days of a public health emergency of international concern being declared. Uh, and uh, he said, so in the spirit of one health, there's clearly no health basis to justify not including Taiwan as an observer to the World Health uh, Authority and uh, to be given uh, meaningful access to all relevant technical meetings. So Alex, um, very interested in your thoughts on this, because first of all, he's saying we've got ahead for the 100 days thing. 
Uh, we've got to absolutely get behind this uh, World Health Organization treaty and so on. Uh, but uh, let's not miss an opportunity to attack China here uh, and uh, effectively signal that we're kind of giving Taiwan some kind of international status by inviting it to take part in this whole process as Taiwan. So One Health, he's talking about and ignoring the One, uh, the one China. China policy. Um, so, you know, he started the thing with geopolitics and he's ended the, the, the speech with geopolitics. That we, it's pretty clear that health isn't really what's on his mind. No, it isn't. And uh, just to expand that acronym that you had on screen a moment ago, it's World Health Assembly. Sorry, this Assembly, is one of those, yes, yes. Yes, one of those treaty-based organizations where an annual assembly of the member states, and of course, don't ask too many questions about the international NGOs that also bankroll them, but it started off in the first iteration as member states by treaty, uh, agreeing at an annual assembly what the agenda is for the, the permanent agent, uh, agency during the year. The Mandarin's then appointed to have a, a central office in some uh, European capital usually. Um, the Taiwan point, of course, maps across to what's happened with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, here in the Netherlands, a takeover, a muscling in and elbowing in by a number of Western states, notably the most uh, aggressive of them usually is the USA, where we know that uh, you know, senior US diplomats and politicians have quite literally walked into the OPCW headquarters and ordered the changing of reports, if you know what's good for you and we know where your grandchildren live in Brazil. So uh, that, that, I think, is the stage we're at. And uh, Javid gave the game away there when he said that the WHO has verified that evil Russia bombed all these truly, honestly in-use healthcare facilities. Uh, you know, believe us or else. And of course, if the next war is China versus Taiwan, then Taiwan has uh, some kind of tack on without causing a diplomatic rupture with the PRC. If Taiwan has some kind of observer status at the WHO, it will unilaterally say, well, we are native speakers of Chinese. We've heard the, the radio traffic and we unilaterally judge that all these hospitals were genuinely bombed by China, mainland China, at a time when they were genuinely filled with civilian patients. And who's to uh, gainsay them? Mm. Yes. Okay. And yeah, it's, the old, it's the old hospital gag uh, that we saw in Syria. Uh, it's yes. the same sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. With Ukraine, the key words, though, the operative words are one health. Watch that buzzword. You, you, you'll start seeing it popping up more and more. One health is they're trying to pay, package pandemics uh, and climate change and war into one sort of holistic concept called one health. And what this is, this is the, this is the underlying framework the underlying mechanism. It's the first building block of a global government. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the first you know, department or framework. And within that is the complete economic framework of the crisis economies right. that I just listed, those three. So what you'll see this mentioned over and over now. They're starting to roll this out. One health, one health, one health. Um, okay, Alex, that brings us on to Australia and their outgoing prime minister. Yes, just before the yeah, Australian federal elections, which saw a change of prime minister, we won't get into uh, Albanese's irregular oath, but perhaps we will later, but we'll just put on record that Albanese has not sworn allegiance to the Queen. Uh, he did an, an affirmation uh, to, the, to Australia with no reference to the monarch at all. But here, just before the election, Scott Morrison, who ended up losing what many regard as a rigged election, was quite uh, unapologetic and in your face uh, about the most controversial of the 13 amendments to the World Health Organization's constitution, which was all the points, uh, all the, all the uh, hot air being generated and, and genuine concern too recently about the WHA in Geneva, is that it might 
have uh, put forward 13 amendments to the WHO's constitution, so the standing year-round body, which would have allowed uh, shock troops to march into any country that was a signatory to the WHO or the UN generally, uh, and to order health work, healthcare workers around. Now, Scott Morrison had this put to him by someone uh, more alert than others in the mainline journalists who were in the room. Uh, but here you'll hear him saying, I make no apologies that we must be able to send our agents into unwilling countries on our own terms. The World Health Organization meets on May 22 and on the agenda is a potential pandemic treaty which would allow the mm. WHO to direct countries in how they control pandemics. Mm. Would you consider signing up to that and handing over any controls to the organisation? I have always been supportive right from the outset and was criticised heavily, I stress, heavily, mocked in fact by the Labor Party for saying the WHO should have those powers and those authorities to be able to go and deal with pandemic situations because we all know what happened at the start of this pandemic. Uh, we, well, the problem is we don't know what happened at the start of this pandemic, and I was the one calling to ensure that we had an independent process to understand what happened so it couldn't be repeated. So I have been in the vanguard of those moves internationally to ensure that there is greater protection for world health, to ensure that uh, those world health authorities can come and understand what's going on and be able to assist countries to be able to prevent the spread and outbreak of major infectious diseases. Uh, now, we'll look at the text of all of that, but we have been amongst the countries that have been positive about these sorts of changes, have to look closely at what the detail is in these things, as you always must. But the idea that countries can just say, no, you can't come in and have a look at a pandemic that's about to break out and actually affect the, the public health and the economy of the entire world, as we saw with this pandemic, then I think it's only sensible that that's an area of international cooperation um, that is very, very important, and I've been consistent on that. And remember, the Labor Party mocked me for saying that that was a good idea. So we're getting into the realm of potential uh, casus belli here, aren't we? The way that he was presenting it. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a mini nod, clearly discernible by his two uh, bag carriers flanking him behind. The nod seemed to suggest, yes, we can't have countries saying no to these, these international mandarins. They must come in. Otherwise, the next step, I think, is an invasion. It's a scary scene. It's like yeah. the movie oh, Village of the Damned. All the children grew up and got into Australian politics. Crazy, huh? <laughs> Funny how that works out. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, Alex. Let's uh, come back to Europe then. And uh, well, the Minister of Health and Care Services opening speech uh, in Norway. Norway is, uh, together with the Netherlands and Switzerland, one of the continental European countries that is very closely aligned with Anglo-American aims, in no, no less so than in the world of health, but also in military interventions often, at least in the case of Norway and the Netherlands. And the Norwegian uh, government website carries here the text of an address given to the World Health Assembly on the 23rd of May uh, by Ingvild Kjerkur, who is new in post since last year. So it was her first WHA. And towards the end of her speech, he uh, gave us this. We now have the possibility to ensure that health is safeguarded by more effective systems, stronger accountability and trust, and by equity, solidarity, and human rights. Uh, Patrick or uh, Mike may wish to comment on these terms. Qu equity in particular has an American English meaning now, which is not the original meaning, which means forcing everyone to have the same outcome. Kierkegaard continued, we expect that the Director General, that's of course Tedros at the moment, will seize this moment and ensure accountability for the World Health Organization, 
holding the highest ethical standards. Of course, uh, Norway, like other Scandinavian countries, is very hot on transparency ethics, at least in their own terms. They like to claim to lead the world in these. We, she continues, have to consolidate the WHO as our, that key possessive pronoun again, our effective, accountable and a failure of Norwegian English here, capacitated leader in multilateralism. And we have to consolidate it as an agency that has zero tolerance for misconduct. I think she's letting a few things slip here. The World Health Organization has an essential role to play to secure health for peace and peace for health. That's a bit like uh, one for all and all for one, isn't it? Now, a bit of a zinger. When this and future health assemblies consider the war in Ukraine, the pandemic treaty... Uh, which was more accurately the revision to the existing treaty and the reforms of the WHO, let us remember that when we stand together, we're back to D'Artagnan here, aren't we? United by values and principles, we are strong. That is what this time calls for. Um, so even th this term of pandemic treaty is not just conspiracy theory in the free media. Uh, some of the participants, the health ministers of nations, leading nations in WHO terms, in this case Norway, were talking about it. But of course, with a particular reason in the US, namely that the US Senate uh, has to have a two-thirds ratification of a genuine treaty, uh, the WHA didn't go that route to revise its constitution. Instead, instead, it tries to pass it off as an amendment to the existing treaty mm -hmm. so that the US and some other countries would not have to present it to their parliaments or equivalent. Now, uh, the World Doctors Alliance, uh, particularly its British member and prominent representative, Dr. Zach Cox, uh, sensed victory here, and I wouldn't uh, say that they're wrong about this. They, they were quite careful in how they assessed it because as of Friday uh, of last week, the 20th of May, and I won't read the text, but people can freeze the screen and read it. And if you tap it again, another one will come up. Um, what's highlighted on the right-hand side here is that as a result of Dr. Zach Cox representing the World Doctors' Alliance, uh, seeking judicial review, which is when a judge, uh, it, it, administrative law basically, a judge tells the executive branch of government that they've exceeded their powers, he filed for judicial review for uh, what the US Department of Health and Human Services had filed, these notorious 13 amendments to the constitution of the World Health Organization. And at close of play, a typical government practice on Friday, he was told there's no merit in this uh, because, and that was the bit that we'd highlighted, 11 of the pro proposed 12 amendments, otherwise seen as 12 of the 13, but in any case, all but one of the proposed amendments had been taken off the table due to an impasse at Geneva when the meeting was live and would not, or before the meeting, and would not be discussed at the WHA, which was still upcoming as of last week. So Dr. Cox called that a victory. Now, if we go on to, I think, the acknowledged world expert on this, James Roguski, who writes at jamesroguski.substack.com. His most recent of the unmissable blogs that he's put out is called Turn Up the Heat, because he's picking up on this very fact. And he picks up particularly on Dr. Zach Cox's uh, excellent efforts. Uh, and uh, what's on screen is, a, is a, um, a summary of what I just said to you. But the next bit of the slide is interesting, because here is James Roguski, and you, you'll find him on Substack or in interviews easy, easily enough to see what his credentials are. He gives us a very good estimate of what may have happened. He says maybe some of the members of the relevant working group at the WHA, which is the working group on prepare, preparedness and response, i.e. the pandemic group, Maybe some of them actually read the amendments. He mentions Brazil, which we've heard, we've seen more rumblings from. Uh, some African nations, we've, we've heard about Russia too, or other stakeholders read the amendments and realised what the hell was going on. A good percentage of the members, this would have been off the uh, 
camera screen, so we wouldn't have seen this, but let it be known, uh, as often happens at the Council of the European Union too, that this is not a goer, so don't put it to a vote or a statement. Maybe some of them oppose the amendments. He optimistically concludes, maybe, just maybe, people power reared its powerful head, shone, shone a very powerful light on the amendments, which were expected to be considered in darkness. Now, if we go on from that, uh, we'll see that there is more. Um, I know that this is confusing for people, but uh, in fields such as mine, interpreting, you'll, we recognize, you'll recognize this format. The idea here is that the plain text, neither bold nor underlined nor uh, struck through, is the text of the WHO's constitution, that's what the annual assembly amends and revises. The text, as it currently stands of the WHO constitution, um, is as it was. Struck through is what the proposal was to take out. And bold and underlined is the proposal to put in. So this is the format across global organizations uh, in which uh, amendments to key documents are considered to make it easier for participants. Roguski has helpfully uh, highlighted with red arrows the added text, uh, the key bit of which is the six-month deadline, and you'll have seen accurate summaries of this in social media warnings, that the key new development was that if you don't say we're backing out of the new new format of the constitution within six months, then it applies to you as a member state. Tap that again and we will see that uh, there continues to be concern because another article, that was 59, article 12 of the WHO constitution still has highlighted in blue this key important uh, fact that the, 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 the what's, what was proposed to be taken out is that each state had to accept that it was an agreement regarding that determination. This is the one that's still on the table, and there is one more part of this slide that shows that. Roguski is saying this matters because yet a third article still has a direct impact on it, namely that the amendment concerns shall not enter into force with respect to that state. That which Scott Morrison was getting bombastic about, here it is in the nitty-gritty in black and white and blue highlighting. The bit that's still on the table after this potential uh, outbreak of people power, thanks to the free media and social media, is that the Geneva Assembly is still going to consider in future whether it can force an individual state uh, to do its bidding uh, or ultimately be forced out of the UN or have some kind of military force against it. And here we see Roguski's flyer, the uh, part at the bottom of the screen, don't you dare dot info, it was a brainwave by him to bookmark that URL. Uh, that will take you directly to one of his mo two most important blogs to date. And the other one, which if you tap again, will come up is stop the who.com. Likewise, that is a short link, which takes you to the other of the most important two blogs that Roguski has written so far. Now on from the WHA and WHO to the other globalist uh, group which is considering health right now, and you've reported on that earlier in the week, Mike, namely the G7. They have had their finance ministers meeting and then latterly their health ministers meeting. To remind those who perhaps weren't watching yesterday on the first ever Thursday UK Colour News in a new format, um, Brian showed on screen then a good viewer's comment uh, by uh, a lady named Jane who uh, gave us some uh, background with a link actually to uh, an organisation uh, in the field of physics, I think it is, or physicians, sorry, uh, that LEOPARD may be an acronym standing for Leveraging Engineered Track Trace RNAs and On-Target DNAs for Parallel RNA Detection. They're one of these iterative acronyms that people love in the, in the field of R&D. Well, whether or not that's the case, it's certain, if you go ahead to the next slide, and this will play out silently, that the um, Bono-like German health minister, Karl Lauterbach, did think that the scenario at the G7 health ministers meeting was related to a, a physical bite by a leopard, as in the creature. 
because the uh, subtitling here uh, is playing us out for those who've got the video, but he's saying that for the G7 health scenario, there was going to be a simulation. And if you uh, listened to the German original as I have, he uses the German word Leopard. Whether or not he's been misbriefed or is deliberately misleading people, I don't know. But he is saying here in terms that the scenario played out by the G7 wasn't to do with some sophisticated acronym, but it was actually to do with the leopard. Now, I'm no uh, zoologist um, or uh, trauma surgeon, uh, but it strikes me that if a leopard bites someone, you haven't got an infection problem, you've got <laughs> a funeral. So I'm a bit concerned, and so are, so are some of the journalists asking. There was, a, there was a subtitle there of a journalist off camera saying, but why a leopard bite scenario? To which Lauterbach said, well, it is realistic. Uh, I don't know whether it is or not. But uh, at the health minister's level of the G7, they do seem to think that it was about an actual leopard bite. Gates of Vienna, absolutely not my favourite site because it's, to, for short, it's turned out to be some kind of Israeli scam, but it was very popular in the old days. But it has at least carried accurate information here, and that, that information was done by better people. The subtitling was done by Vlad Tsepesh blog and the RAIR Foundation, who are accurate, um, actually provides the transcript. So if you tap that again and people can freeze that screen, um, this is the less than a minute long remarks made by Lauterbach with accurate English subtitles. So he is here saying in terms that it's a leopard bite. Whether or not uh, we've got to the bottom of this, I don't know yet, but it strikes me as a bit odd all round. Okay, uh, well, let's move on to vaccinations, uh, Patrick. Sure, sure. I, I just wanted to add, quickly add to what Alex said. N Nigeria, biggest African country by, uh, or Southern African country by population, they're pushing back. Brazil, pushing back, biggest, right. south, most powerful. South American country. So these aren't just, uh, this is not in the conspiracy theory realm. These are major actors, major state actors pushing back on this WHO treaty. They're panicking. They're really panicking, I yeah, think. And yeah, so okay. this is why we're seeing all these various uh, other routes to try to get to their destination. But uh, on, on the subject of vaccines, well, this is what it's really all about, isn't it? It's about vaccines. It's about Big Pharma's global experiment. We're talking about rolling out vaccines to the entire population. Uh, without having tested them properly, uh, without having had them go through their paces that they would have normally gone through this whole process they want to abridge and abbreviate. And that is the new status quo, uh, basically. So this story broke into very little fanfare, uh, but it's this actually happened. Uh, the great public health grift watchdog in America uncovers 350 million uh, in secret payments to Fauci Collins head of the uh, NIH and others at the NIH. So this was a giant slush fund uh, that was, was, people were being paid kind of, you know, off the books, under the table, whatever. This is a genuine scandal. Uh, they haven't denied this. They've admitted, the government agencies admit this is a big, big problem. This is just to show you the amount of money that these public health officials stand to make mm. uh, for, for handing out grants and backing the Modernas of the world and paying for their R&D and using this taxpayers to subsidize basically all these gold mines right. for big pharma. So uh, just to go back to Davos, so Bill Gates, incredibly, has turned out to be a bit of a vaccine denier. No. Bill Gates is a vaccine denier straight from the horse's mouth. He is absolutely uh, un unsteady with his position on his brainchild, the COVID vaccine. Listen to this. And then, you know, as we do come up with vaccines, we want vaccines that are infection blocking and long duration, which today, you know, the vaccines have saved millions of lives, 
but they don't have uh, much in the way of duration, and they're not they're not good at infection blocking. I was hearing from a, a friend who had family in Sweden who needed a particular vaccine to get there, a particular one to get to the US, a particular one was available somewhere else. You know, get, getting global standards established as to, as to what you know, qualifies as, as, as protection, I think, would be useful. So there's probably work to be done in this space. Yeah. yeah, it'd be more valuable if you had an infection blocking vaccine. I mean, the <laughs> idea of checking if people are vaccinated, mm. you know, if you have breakthrough infections, mm. What's the point? Uh... Okay. He just shot down the vaccine passport, shot down the whole vaccine program pretty much. He's, he's saying they're just not, they weren't good enough. They weren't good enough. After we've rolled them out to the entire planet. Yes. Not good enough. Not good enough. Not good enough. Okay. So, uh, so turn the clock back. Another big advocate of vaccines, of course, is Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, the highest paid man in the U.S. government. Uh, and so he, this is back in 2004. Listen to what he said about vaccines and the flu and immunity back in 2004. This is Lord Fauci. A vaccination, that's a, that's a very, very small minority of it. And unfortunately, that appears to be the case with you. Uh, but she's had the flu for 14 days. Should she get a flu shot? Well, no. If she got the flu for 14 days, she's as protected as anybody can be because the best vaccination is to get infected yourself. And so she if, not she get it? if she really has the flu, if she really has the flu, she definitely doesn't need a flu vaccine. Next, if she really has the flu, she right. should not get it again. No, she time. doesn't need it because the, it, it's the be, it's the most potent vaccination is getting infected yourself. I guess the science has changed, hasn't it? I guess. What do you think? The, well, the biological world has changed since 2014, or sorry, 2004? 2004, yeah. yeah or, or has Fauci's uh, business interests changed? That's, a, that's, that's an interesting question. Yeah. He's certainly probably earning quite a bit more now than he was then. Yeah, I guess the earth was flat back in 2004. But anyway, uh, so this, the New York Times uh, released a little bit of interesting data we're going to share with you here. Let's take a look at this. So rates for vaccinated and unvaccinated. This is from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention shows that people who are unvaccinated, they claim, are at much greater risk than those who are fully vaccinated uh, to die from COVID-19 still, even today. So these charts compare age-adjusted average daily case and death rates for vaccinated and unvaccinated people in the United States. Let's take a look at this. Oh, look at the small print here. People who are unvaccinated are at a much greater risk than those who are fully vaccinated to die from COVID-19. That's the main claim. Oh, here's the here's the, uh, the graph here. You'll probably find some of these ways of cooking data, Mike, very familiar. Yes. Uh, we've seen this all before. These are average daily cases. So let's take a closer look uh, at that. Those are two, 400 cases per 100,000, 200. Same old tricks, right? Yes. The extrapolation. Uh, uh, technique there with the with the graph, but let's take a closer uh, look at that and look at this. Well, yeah, it's really not that much different, but look at the size of that giant peak. It's very impressive, right? This is basically what they're basing uh, these broad claims on. Uh, so again, what we're saying is we're just pointing to the same old games uh, being played here, even in 2022 that we saw uh, way back when average daily deaths. This one's even more impressive, Mike. Look at that. 
three deaths per 100,000 and two deaths in one. But look at the size of those peaks. Very impressive, right? Right. Very impressive indeed. And again, we're just pointing out how the mainstream media still use all these fancy tricks to distort the data. People who are unvaccinated are at a much greater risk than those who are fully vaccinated to die from COVID. That's the claim. Is this real? Is this a genuinely accurate claim? No, we're saying that this is government pharma propaganda. It's the same old propaganda that they've been doing since the beginning. So we just wanted to share that with you. This is Dr. Merrill Nash uh, from the Children's Health Defense. She did this for Mercola. 36% of Americans, uh, this is 219 uh, million. Yes. Yeah, minus 100 million, uh, took the initial series and refused the booster. So let's add that to 18% who refused all of them and add 11% who refused the second shot. And let's take a look at this. So now you have 65% of the country who said no uh, to any further vaccines. That's a big, pretty big number. Yeah. Okay, so the New York Times is saying that they're all at risk of death, uh, apparently. So this is the mainstream media doing their thing. So uh, I just thought we'd share that with you. The same sort of fraud that we've been seeing for the last two years, they're still doing it and they will continue to do it. Um, as well. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's uh, move on then. And uh, if you like what the UK column does then, and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and there are options to help us out there or, or via the shop uh, and uh, lots of stuff to uh, pick up if you would like to support us that way. But in any case, do share uh, our material on the various platforms. And I just want to let everybody know of uh, an event taking place uh, tomorrow. Uh, and it's uh, at the Geneva Press Club. Uh, this is the International Alliance for Justice and Democracy. They're holding a, a press conference. Um, and uh, so they're saying that their group was convened to uh, address concerns about the deterioration of human rights, democratic procedures, and uh, observed during the past few years. Uh, they're saying that social contracts have recently been broken uh, in an exceptionally accelerated manner. And they're saying that the legal framework designed to protect justice and democracy is being eroded at rapid speed. Uh, and so they're getting together to, to launch this uh, uh, press conference. It'll be live streamed on, uh, at www.live.childrenshealthdefense.org. And it'll include uh, many speakers, including Philip Cruz, uh, who's an attorney from Switzerland, uh, 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 Catherine Austin Fitz, uh, Mary Holland, many names that uh, we recognize from uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics, for example. Um, and uh, so I do recommend everybody watches that uh, tomorrow. Um, so, uh, Alex, um, you, Brian and David uh, interviewed uh, a sheikh a couple of days ago. Tell us all about it. It was quite the experience, Mike. It was on the 10th of May in Exeter. It's the other main city in Devon besides Plymouth. So it wasn't far for us to travel from the studio. That's where we met the sheikh. It's Sheikh Imran Hossein with uh, an O, H-O-S-E-I-N, who lives on Trinidad and whose scholarship uh, comes out of, not that the country was called Pakistan then, but basically what became Pakistan late in the British Raj period. A particular strain of compelling scholarship came out then in opposition to the dominant Sunni Islamic thinking, much more able to relate the Quran as the scripture of Islam to the modern world and geopolitics and finance. And there's something for everyone in this three-parter. The third part will be going up, I think, before the end of the day. Uh, we'll be showing a, a clip from it in a moment. But all three parts are, as it were, segments in themselves. It worked out quite well. The first part was kicked off by me. 
and largely talked about theology. The middle section, uh, part two, was kicked off by David and largely concerns the end times. And the third part kicked off by Brian talks about uh, how young people can guard their minds. And that's the one that's now up on the Sheikh's channel and shortly on ours as well. But for those who are not deeply interested in interfaith dialogue, and we have taken some flack from a minority of both Muslim and Christian viewers for either pushing the boat out too far or not being sharp enough or whatever people's views are. But the majority of our audience, both Christian and Muslim and atheistic, liked it. Um, what we uh, would like to highlight in these couple of clips here is that this is a sheikh who, due to his background in philosophy and international relations in New York, San Francisco, various American cities, is well able to talk about geopolitics. And in the first of the clips, uh, which comes from part one, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, part two, because we showed a clip from part one already, from the central part, part two of the discussion, and this is in response, I think, to David Scott's question about uh, the end times and sound money. Here, the Sheikh talks about the basis of sound money in a way that will, I think, surprise a lot of people who haven't heard many Islamic scholars talk before. When the Western world went out to conquer the rest of the world at the point of a naked bloodstained sword, and then established the colonial and imperial rule over the rest of mankind, they didn't go there to stay. Churchill perhaps didn't understand that. They went there to transform those societies into carbon copies of themselves. One of the things they did was to take real money out of the market. Real money, money with integrity. They don't even know the meaning of the term money with integrity. And they don't care to learn money with integrity. Even the monetary economist still doesn't care for the term money with integrity. The monetary economist is not okay. They took money with intrinsic value and banned it. You're not allowed to use money with intrinsic value. And they replaced it. Prepare yourself for this, David. They replaced it with money with fictitious value. And then they could control the value of that money as Imran Khan in Pakistan is now learning too late. And when they don't like your profile, they can bring down the value of your money. And as they bring down the value of the, it's very easy for them. You don't like your profile in Venezuela, your Bolivia, your Venezuelan Bolivar will be worth nothing. They don't like your profile in Zimbabwe. Your Zimbabwe dollar will be worth nothing. And they don't like your profile in Pakistan. They will bring down the value of your money and prices will rise. This is called inflation. It's the most dangerous weapon of all that they have. How do you deal with it? Answer simple. Even a schoolboy can understand it, but these cannot, the sheep and cattle. The answer is you have to bring back money with intrinsic value. And intrinsic value, this, the dinar is in the Quran, a dinar is a gold coin. The dirham is a silver coin. All that you need is a police in the market to ensure the integrity of the money. So there is no there's no alloy, there's no uh, subverting the value of the money. 
that was quite revelatory. But in part three, which, as I say, will shortly be going up on UKColumn.org and already is on Sheikh Imran Hussein's channel, we got a bit more pointed because towards the end of this uh, discussion totaling nearly two and a half hours over the three parts, matters turned to what was the spiritual uh, battle going on really behind money as much as behind any of the, the other things that we and the Sheikh are both concerned about, like the sexualization of children. And here Sheikh Imran Hussein talks about a one world currency being the ultimate aim. And uh, I think together with some uh, Jews, not just the Christians and Muslims watching, we agree that political Zionism currently ruling Israel uh, is poised to take a lead in the world currency. It won't be a US dollar, as you'll hear the uh, Sheikh say in the clip in a moment. It won't be the dollar that has hegemony or perhaps even a gold-backed ruble, uh, but something altogether new. Let's have a listen to the Sheikh on that. We have to not only recover a critical mind, a mind which still has the capacity to think because the heart is not polluted with hatred and corruption. But then you also have to turn to the Word of God. And I am teaching this, how to study the Quran. I spent my whole life with this. And how to assess knowledge that is outside of the Quran, with the Quran. If you are able to do this, you will then be able to turn to international monetary economics. And you see the big fraud going on from paper money to paper money which is backed by gold at $35 an ounce to paper money in no man's land, 1971 to 73 to paper money which now becomes a petrodollar, is flying high to cryptocurrencies when the time comes for the paper money to be demolished so cryptocurrencies which are not under the control of central banks and Bitcoin and then finally one currency for all of mankind after the Great War no more British pound, no more US dollar, no more Euro, no more Pakistani rupee. All currencies will disappear. Why is the monetary economist not talking about that? He's scared. Eh? The monetary economist is not talking about this. What we are saying that there is one currency coming for all of mankind, for the global society. And it will be a currency, of course, it will be electronic money. If the Great Wall corrupts the atmosphere, they probably use, um, what is it called, cyber um, cables. Okay? And uh, the one currency will be controlled by either the Israeli central bank itself or by something created to rep represent them. Well, David Ben-Gurion did say in 1963 or thereabouts that his vision was for a world court and a world bank to be headquartered in Jerusalem. It's already, it's already on the way to that. It's already on the way to that. This is the best way to prepare, Brian. A thinking mind. A heart which is with nur in it. So the nur means light. The proper methodology for study of the scripture. Using the scripture to judge knowledge outside of the scripture. And then turn to the world today to understand international politics, international economics, monetary economics, what is happening in the military affairs and so on. I have been blessed by the Lord God. I am grateful to him that he gave this to me. I studied international relations in two universities after doing a master's degree in philosophy and after being taught the religion by one of the greatest scholars of the world at that time. And there, perhaps in a nutshell, Mike and Pat, you have the declaration as to why Sheikh Imran Hussein is as much out on a limb 
within Sunni Islam scholarship as the few switched on Christian preachers in Protestantism and Catholicism are in Christianity or indeed within Judaism, the same applies. It's because most of them haven't done hard study of a secular subject before becoming clerics. They go into a seminary or equivalent and in that bubble, they're basically told you have a job for life if you toe the line. And of course, with the conservatives in these religions, there is some lip service at least to exclusivity, uh, moral standards and so on. But in other regards, and when the chips are down, really most clerics will compromise with what they know to be a fraudulent and lying system of money and education, and the sheikh will not. Let's have a look very briefly then on screen at some of the comments left on Sheikh Imran Hussein's own uploads of them. And there are people at the top left saying that uh, th this is a Sheikh who is addressing areas which are foreign to most clerics of Islam. As I said a moment ago, that applies in Christianity. Um, somebody saying that, who was obviously a prior follower of both the column and the Sheikh, that this is like seeing your favourite boxer in the crowd at a football match. This is more like, I think, a, a Basil Valentine comment on the Sunday Wire episode. Another Muslim below that saying, most of our scholars are hopeless. Well, I'm afraid this is true in the other religions too. Um, uh, a presumably British non-Muslim viewer saying, we're not so different after all. That gratifies me to see that comment. Uh, people appreciating the breadth uh, in the middle column of the uh, what I've pasted in the breadth of the discussion. And uh, we need to see more of this. Amazing. Here's in the very middle uh, by Hakam Abu Gharibah, I think it is. You can see this telling comment. You will never hear or see on corporate-owned media outlets any productive dialogue between religions. I endorse that the, the assessment, it's true. You only see grudges and hate spreading and attacks on religion. Uh, more people calling for more of this. The Sheikh was humble enough to acknowledge and appreciate a correction to one of the things he said, which he said in the interview, uh, that uh, Putin had apologised to Israel for Lavrov's comments carried in UK column a couple of weeks ago about Israel. And the Sheikh acknowledged that actually there's no evidence Putin did apologise. It was just uh, media guff. Uh, towards the right, this is a rather telling comment as well. A Christian from Eritrea says, with surprise, I think this sheikh believes in Christ. And the sheikh replies, and this is a mainstream Muslim position, not just the sheikh. He says, well, all Muslims believe in him as the Messiah or Christ. Bottom right, I shan't read out, but presumably by a British Muslim qualified English lawyer, he's talking about common law and equity. Common law came into the interview, and he's pointing out that in every Commonwealth and every US, US jurisdiction, equity, the principles of a fair outcome, First principles, fairness. Brian was talking about this in the interview. Equity is there and it outranks common law if the case law has failed in the past. And this is obscured in every jurisdiction. So we've got people now switched on to the tricks going on in the law courts. Um, this is a, a wonderful meeting of the audiences and we do trust there'll be more of it. Yeah, very good. Thoughts? Well, just I, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Sheikh Iman uh, in, in, in Tehran in Iran in 2017, we talked about end times eschatology, and I think you've also covered this uh, in your interview series as well. So I'm very much looking forward to watching uh, all three parts. Okay, thank you for that. Let's uh, move on to Ukraine then, and uh, an update. Yeah, just a quick update. Where are we at with this conflict right now, uh, Ukraine versus Russia? Uh, let's take a closer look here. Uh, and this is a little bit of a turn going on right now. This is uh, the opposition media in, in Russia, and they're saying uh, we're barely afloat. Alarming comments by Ukrainian officials suggest problems for Kiev in Donbass, where the Russian troops seek a new Mariupol. So even the most strident uh, sort of anti-Putin media outlet here, Medusa, which I believe is run from the Baltic states, 
but it's Russian opposition media. Um, they're basically admitting that, oh, things aren't going so well mm. uh, with the war. If you watch U.S. media, they've been saying for months now that Ukraine is just uh, kicking Russia's behind all over the place, and uh, they're on the cusp of uh, a major victory. They've been saying this now for, for months, okay? Yes. So now you can see the cracks appearing. It seems like those in the West are preparing for the shock, the inevitable here. This is Neil Hauer. He's a mainstream uh, media Western journalist embedded uh, with Ukrainian forces. And this is what he said here, Ukrainian presidential spokesman uh, up to seven to 10. Uh, seven to one. Seven to one. Uh, the Russians are outnumbering Ukrainian forces uh, in the Donbass here. Let's just blow that up. They're quoting a uh, advisor to Zelensky, Russian forces outnumber Ukrainian troops seven to one in Donbass. Now, this is interesting because just last week, didn't Zelensky say this? We've got 700,000 defenders of Ukraine now, says Zelensky as the battles rage in Donbass. So what do we actually believe coming out of the mouth of this president, this actor who is playing the role, it seems, of President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky? Um, so everything he says is good as gold, as far as all the Western leaders say, at Davos in Washington, in British Parliament, wherever he's speaking on Zoom, mm. it, it, he's his gospel, whatever comes out of his mouth. So is this a case where they've been absolutely lying at every turn about almost every aspect of this conflict since the beginning? And you can't hide the uh, casualties and the death numbers of Ukrainian soldiers. The dailies that we're looking at out of the Russian Ministry of Defense, basically almost a, a battalion a day, Ukraine is losing. And it has been like that for the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. So we're getting up past 30,000 according to their numbers. Now, we'll see. Eventually, we're going to find out where these numbers are. There's also accusations that Ukraine is counting dead soldiers as deserters so as to not to put them on the, on the, the total number of deaths. So it's a PR issue, which we discussed in previous programs here. So let's take a look at that. Yeah, 700,000 soldiers. Really? Well, it doesn't seem like that. Now, this is footage here. This is from Azovstal plant. Russian forces have gone down. What did they find? 300 dead Ukrainian soldiers in freezers. They just left them there. They've pulled, some of these were out. Some of them were in the freezer truck. Uh, they've, they've pulled out some of these and put them out to try to identify them. So again, no word from Ukrainian officials to acknowledge that this is actually happening. How much of this is going on across the country? I mean, it's shocking. Mm -hmm. So th this is from Rudenko. He's embedded a journalist there with the Russian military. So the question is, why would they have uh, dead in freezers? Is this in order to hide the number of dead or is it in, to, to, uh, to drag them out at some point in the future and spread them around the streets like we saw in Buka? It's well, there's that possibility, or they could have been trying to maybe preserve them uh, so that the, maybe their relatives would be in better condition and for a funeral. Who knows? Yeah. I, I can't answer that question. Yeah. But what, what's more shocking is that the Russians are finding this, and Ukrainian officials haven't, or the Azovstal or, uh, people who are in there, the Azov Battalion, haven't alerted the Russian forces to this to say, hey, by the way, we've got 300 dead soldiers in, in, in the meat locker. Uh, can, you, can you sort those out, please? Right. And that doesn't seem to have happened. So they're sweeping as of stall now. They're finding stragglers down there, by the way, and they're, they're doing mine sweeping. Sappers are down there, etc. So if we look at one of the key battle places here, uh, this is the city of Lyman, and they've raised the uh, Donetsk 
People's Republic flag, the DPR flag, is now flying over the government buildings in the key Donbass uh, town of Lyman. Okay, so the Russian Federation uh, DPR flags are flying so effectively, according to uh, Arestovich, yes, Zelensky's advisor, trusted advisor, that uh, Lyman is now under Russian control. So that's one of the key choke points um, in this sort of the cauldron, as they call it, uh, in Donbass. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of Alexei Arestovich, uh, let's just because obviously we had uh, uh, a comment from a very senior U.S. diplomat, former uh, government official and diplomat, and so on. Uh, none other than what Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, thank you, because uh, I'd completely forgotten there for a second. But anyway, uh, saying that uh, really uh, Ukraine should get to the negotiating table. They should give Russian Russia some of the land that uh, basically the Russians are occupying at the moment. Well, Alexei wasn't too impressed with that uh, with that particular comment from uh, from him. So uh, go f yourselves with such proposal. He said, "You well, I mean, people so can read that to themselves. Kissinger." This is basically what he's not directly, but this is what he said in response to Kissinger. Uh, are you effing crazy? Uh, our children are dying. Soldiers are stopping shells with their own bodies and they're telling us how to sacrifice our territories. This will never happen. So he was pretty uh, offended by that, it seems. Yeah, he's a very interesting character, Arestovich, one of the most fascinating characters, uh, media characters of this whole conflict. And uh, it's, it's interesting. So someone has posted a, a handy guide here. Uh, on Telegram, and what is this? Let's take, let's just take a look. This is Arestovich's dictionary. So Arestovich has incredibly managed to redefine and introduce whole new language to the world of warfare. We'll just show some of these because they are quite clever. This is a standard meaning. That's the Arestovich translation here. The first one is interesting. Uh, retreat without a fight, and under Arestovich's new definition, that's called a maneuverable defense. That's a good one. We'll take a look at the next here. Okay, uh, normally you would say Russian offense. Arestovich redef redefinition is the Russians perhaps have advanced a bit, a bit, <laughs> right? And this is the, really the piece de la resistance. This is the most groundbreaking uh, in terms of military euphemisms here. Surrender has now been called an evacuation. Yes. So that's what we saw in Azovstal. So again, he's the brainchild of this. Very clever guy, the chief propagandist, a latter-day Goebbels, if you will, maybe a bit more. Uh, the impossibility of a counterattack is called an operational pause. So the Americans could learn a lot from Arestovich. Trust me, this is cutting-edge stuff here. And the last one, uh, the normal term here would be Russian troops take five settlements in a day. Uh, Arestovich language redefinition is desperate offensive of exhausted Russians. So again, whatever he's saying is more or less what's coming out of the New York Times, yes. the Washington Post, uh, Congress, and Senate right now. Uh, and I dare say the British uh, Parliament uh, too, and the ministries in the UK, they're using some of the same language, or at least reflecting some of this language as well. So there you are. That's Arestovich's dictionary. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, briefly come on to the ruble and the dollar then. Well, you mentioned the economy early on, and so we're, we're told Russia's getting hammered militarily, economically. What did we see this week? We'll look at this, Russian ruble uh, to a four-year high, 57 rubles to the dollar. You remember when sanctions came down? Yes. 130 rubles to the dollar. If you were to put your money in rubles back then, you would have more than doubled it in three months. Where else do you get that kind of a return on your investment 
um, absolutely nowhere. But uh, we had a little bit on the recruitment, but we'll 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 do that another time. Okay. Okay. So uh, uh, yes, let's uh, let's move on, uh, and uh, we'll just do some quick editing here. And I just want to move on to uh, to this uh, because uh, the U.S., the U.K., and the uh, EU have uh, issued a joint statement. A trustee crimes advisory group is uh, what they have established. Uh, this is what they're talking about. So let's uh, have a look and see what they're saying. Uh, today, the European Union, the United States and the United Kingdom have announced the creation of the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group, a mechanism aimed at ensuring efficient coordination of their respective support to accountability efforts on the ground. The ACA will reinforce current US, uh, sorry, EU, US and UK efforts to further accountability for atrocity crimes in the context of Russia's ongoing uh, war of aggression against Ukraine. Um, and uh, today, and they go on to say, well, they should point out that, of course, this should be seen in the context of this, uh, which was established by the United States recently, the Conflict Observatory, which seems to be gathering the various reports of claims of Russian atrocity crimes in Ukraine. This is a jumped up version of the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. Right. Uh, and Alex, the key point here is that, that they set up websites like this. And as Patrick says, it seems to be a jumped up version of Syrian Observatory and Human Rights. And what do we see then? We see that uh, uh, this uh, stuff gets posted to these websites. And then the next thing you find it in the mainstream press because the because journalists are just basically taking their narratives directly off sites like this. Yes, and also because unlike in Syria, we are now in uh, a conflict in Ukraine where they're part of uh, the European cultural zone. Uh, this uh, has a, a great effect on the native intelligentsia the NGO world within Ukraine, to take one example, the one I know best, the Protestant and Catholic clergy of the various kinds that are to be found in Ukraine, quite a broad range in both. And when they see NGO types talking about this, uh, the clergymen stand up with one, one voice and say, it is clear from international and, uh, un, uh, and uh, independent NGO observation that Russia is the aggressor. I have not to this day found a single Protestant or Catholic clergyman in the Ukraine, with the possible exception of the very conservative Russian-speaking Baptists, unsurprisingly, who have said anything short of Russia is the aggressor in this war and we did nothing wrong. You know, this is a major part of the feedback loop uh, that causes that situation. And of course, jiggling the strings in the background is a couple of PR firms in London. And so, yeah, and Alex is spot on there. And yeah. what they've done, if, if they don't think the uh, crimes of Russia rise to the level of genocide, which they attempted to do recently, uh, many times in the press, they've created a new category, which is called atrocity. And that's meant to be almost as bad as a genocide, but you should be equally uh, horrified by it and condemn it and disavow it, etc. So it, th this is a real um, contrived uh, little device here. It's quite innovative. I have to give them that. Okay, so let's uh, bring Liz Truss on screen for a second. <coughs> Excuse me. Right, so uh, Liz Truss was in uh, Sarajevo uh, yesterday or the day before, and uh, this is what she had to say. Putin is weaponizing hunger and lack of food amongst the poorest people in the world. Uh, she, uh, sorry, he needs to remove the blockade on Ukrainian grain. Uh, we will do all with our allies and partners to get grain out of Ukraine and supply the rest of the world. Now, of course, the headlines around this uh, involved uh, whether the Royal Navy was going to get involved in uh, breaking the block of, uh, of Odessa or not. But anyway, I wanted to highlight a couple of the other things that she said on this speech because uh, she went on to say, uh, we said never again would we allow such suffering in Europe. Let's show that we meant it. Russia's aggression 
uh, cannot be appeased. It must be met with strength. Uh, we can't take our foot off the accelerator now. So it doesn't matter how badly Ukraine is losing. We're going to keep uh, flogging the dead horse and keep it going. Russia's aggression cannot be appeased. Again, with the Second World War language and so on, uh, it must be met with strength. Uh, our support for Bosnia and Herzegovina, like our support for Ukraine, is about our belief in a simple principle, the right of people to decide their democratic future and protect themselves. Ah, we start to get a clue as to what she was actually doing there. Another provocation. Well, yes, because the country's future lies on this path and in greater partnership with NATO uh, <laughs> and countries like the UK. So, Alex, that's what she was doing there. Uh, they want to see, uh, she, they are agitating for further NATO expansion um, and while at the same time accusing Russia of expansionist policies. Well, this was all uh, test run, wasn't it, in the 1990s and 2000s when it was mainly the Washington DC foreign policy outfit and the victim countries were Arab countries. So in the Madeleine Albright era, of course, Madame Albright's recently died, uh, she justified on camera starving half a million Iraqi children. It was worth it, she said. So there's the weaponization of food, much more latterly with Gulf Arab countries and uh, European countries involved as well. We've had the same in Yemen. Uh, so th there is nothing new here except that Britain is perhaps taking the lead from the US and the countries involved now are European uh, admittedly the poorest in the Balkans, but European countries being told you will starve or you will be with us. And, and I might quickly add, Mike, uh, Ukraine mm -hmm. made the uh, amazing genius move to mine the waters around the port of Odessa to protect their naval assets and maybe to keep the Russians away from Odessa. There's a price to be paid for that. Yes. And one of them is, is, is they're going to have problems exporting their grain. The other thing is sanctions against Russia have impeded Russia from uh, supplying food, grains, wheat, fertilizers to the rest of the world. That's a Western policy decision. And the other thing is uh, the, it, they're perfectly able to transport much of this to the port of Gdansk. Uh, in Poland, why is that not? Why is that a problem? Mm. But the other thing is, uh, the the a lot of the breadbasket is in DPR and Lugansk, and it's in the Donbass. It's it's in that side of the contact line now as well. So no word about that. No word about that. So it's 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 a oh, it's a very dumbed down narrative, and it feeds into that kind of live aid uh, crisis narrative, and and so they're that's what they're selling, devoid of any context devoid of any nuance or details. We're just meant to kind of go with this story. Okay, Alex, I just wanted to get your, your thoughts. We put Liz Truss back up on screen uh, here. Um, she's uh, wearing a very Theresa May color there. If you remember Theresa May's uh, famous blue uh, jacket and so on. Uh, do you think she is, uh, do you think uh, Liz Truss is angling for uh, the leadership and do you think she has got any prospect of it, Alex? Sadly, yes and yes, because uh, Theresa May was a previous iteration of this uh, channeling uh, of Mrs. Thatcher's spirits, and she did it a, a bit more competently. But of course, her argument, and Harriet Harman tried this in vain when she was running against Gordon Brown for the Labour Party leadership, her argument was, you must vote for me because I'm a woman. So in that phase, Theresa May was uh, wearing handbags and colours redolent of Mrs Thatcher and also Kit in the Heels um, at the Conservative Party conference. But along with that was the argument at Conservative Party conferences, we must stop being the nasty party. Liz yes. Truss has got much more of that. She's got the head girl factor, as we keep saying, but I'm afraid it's, it's, the, it's the kindest, uh, accurate description we can give. 
Uh, and of course, she was a Liberal Democrat when she started out. And there's a famous, well, I try to make it famous anyway, uh, clip of an exchange with Peter Hitchens on BBC's Question Time a few years ago, where she says, I don't believe in councils of despair. I believe our greatest days are ahead of us, not behind us. To which Peter Hitchens said, you don't really believe in anything, do you? You don't even know which party you belong to. So that kind of figure, yes, very much will be poised to take the leadership because it's a, it's another repeat of the 1990s cycle where the Conservatives find that more uh, more um, corruption allegations stick to them than to the Red Party. And so they usually get out of that cycle by anointing a female leader. Yes. So, yes, I'm afraid her vacuous leadership is, is in with a real chance. Yeah. Oh, dear. I agree. Yes. You're so, looking well, this so next, I, the next prime minister. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. OK, well, let's let's add with a couple of uh, uh, names. Um, and uh, Alex, first of all. Bit of a bumper crop, but you've just got a couple of the highlights here. First of all, we've got a chap going for a job interview and he's asked, what are your long term goals? And he replies, I'm just trying to survive through the winter without being put in a death camp at this point. Well, you can call it gallows humour, but it says a thing or two that people are thinking that in, in meme world. And the other one I picked out is a couple of uh, hammed up aliens waiting to go on stage and frighten people with uh, poor quality masks over their heads with the big slits for the big alien eyes. And they're a bit annoyed that their moment in uh, on, on the stage has been delayed and they're asking each other, monkeypox, I thought we were up next. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And, and, and indeed, uh, it is becoming increasingly the case that they are up next, or it seems that way, because uh, you know the BBC on Sunday was pushing this narrative as hard as they possibly could. Same so, in America. Yes. Aliens all day. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, we'll leave it there for now. We'll be back in a few minutes on the main live stream for uh, some extra. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Patrick and Alex, for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time uh, for the normal news at 1 p.m. on Monday. Hope everyone has a good weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.